The Redneck Tech Podcast is brought to you by Mike'sArchery.com. They're a one-stop shop for virtually everything archery, bow hunting, and for your next outdoor adventure. Mike's Archery has been at the top of the archery game for over 50 years, and they want to give listeners of the Redneck Tech Podcast 10% off their entire online store using the code REDNECK10, all one word. Just put the code in before you check out, and your boys will hook you up. The guys at Mike's have always been good to us, and now they can be good to you too. Visit mikesarchery.com and get your gear now. Right here, right here, right here. Yeah. You want him? Yeah. Welcome back. Redneck Tech Podcast, episode 192. You've got me and Ryer in the office today, and we are going to be talking about quick turnarounds and edits, which is the name of the game nowadays. It's what we do a lot of. Um, there's positives to it. There's negatives to it. There's negatives to it. Can't talk. But um, the world we live in, man, if you can't do quick turnarounds right now, it's a... Uh, it's hard to stay in business. It's hard to make any money. But I don't know. I don't know what the the first. I guess the first question I'd have for you is if we if you had it, if you could make up your mind or you had it your way, would you do this quick turnaround content, or would you like to go back to the I guess the old TV days or even I guess some of the network shows now to where they'll shoot everything and then air it at a later date to where you have plenty of time to do it. I mean, I know what I would rather do. I know what you would rather do, but like what are the pros and cons of it? I guess is kind of what I'm getting at. Like, you know, if it was up to us, we would film something, you know, all fall and then release it the next fall. But the world we live in won't allow you to do that anymore. Everybody wants you to shoot it now, get it out now, time relevance, time relevance, time relevance. But at the same time, I guess we kind of do a hybrid of it right now with Bergara. Kind of we we yeah. we shoot things like we'll, we'll shoot an episode in October, and then episode might not air till December, January, even into February. When did y'all shoot BC? August. Yeah, we shot the BC trip in kind of like I think the middle of August and that's last year of twenty twenty three. Air in February or March, right? That will um, that should be coming out March ish. That's your Ish. next. That's your next edit to work on, isn't it? Uh, Clay's working on that one right now. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yep. But yeah, so um, I know how much you love quick turnarounds. Tell me about it. Tell me how much you love them. Yeah, I'm not a big quick turnaround guy, um, and I think some of it probably is also the nature of most of the edits that I do, because most of the edits I do are the longer ones, and so quick turnarounds can be tough because you just don't have as much time with the footage, and you've got a ton of footage. Uh, to go through so I would rather sit with the footage and have it and be able to uh, especially for like massage it love it yeah (laughs) yeah especially for like series content yeah Um, I think series content really benefits from the shoot it all and then figure out what you've got and then release it you know, I think if you're able to shoot an entire hunting season and then once you're done shooting, then you know the high points of the season, the low points, the turning points, 
all of the important things, and then you can go and craft your story arc and episode structure to complement that. Uh, and you can set things up that you know are going to happen. You can foreshadow stuff. You can really use all of that knowledge to be able to construct a really satisfying season arc. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you shoot, edit, release, shoot, edit, release, shoot, edit, release, you don't really get the opportunity to do that because, like, for example, say you had a series where you were following somebody through basically the whole year, right? They'll have these activities that they do throughout the year, hopefully to uh, set them up for success in the hunting season. Well, they might do something and have an encounter with, let's say, a bull when they're scouting. And then later on, if they kill that bull, then you know, hey, we need to spend some time on this encounter when they're scouting so that when they do kill that bull, it's rewarding because you got to see the work that went into it. And then the audience kind of, once you introduce that bull, the audience is like, Oh, I saw them before. Um, or maybe they have a great encounter with a bull, but it doesn't end up like they never see him again. He doesn't appear, uh, in the hunting season. They never find him again. And so you can go, well, it's a cool encounter but they don't see him ever again. So do we want to spend time on that encounter or do we want to gloss over that and get to something that we know will pay off later on? Yeah. Um, And I think that's the main uh, advantage of not the quick turnaround stuff. But the disadvantage is that when you do that, all your stuff is a year old and... I think audiences, especially in the hunting space, in the nonfiction genre, want to see things as like almost as they're happening, right? Especially with social media being so recent and and up to date. I mean, you're seeing what people are doing <clears throat> within minutes a lot of times. You know, like somebody will be on a hunt and they'll glass up a big bowl and they'll put that phone scope footage on their story, and so that same day, you know exactly what they're up to. Yeah. And so if you know they're filming, you might want to see, like, you want to see that more or less immediately. And so, you know, if you film it all and it comes out a year later, then you kind of lose a little bit of that time relevancy um, when you don't do a quick turnaround. Yeah. The, The quick turnaround thing, the genesis of the quick turnaround is social media and, and the, the growth of YouTube. It's, and, and it's, and it's became even more popular and it makes it hard for guys like, uh, like us because most quick turnaround things that are on YouTube and even on social media are generally very low production value. They're mm-hmm. very real and raw and, you know, film and follow. There's not a ton of production. There's not a ton of, um, you know, like you said, stories or, you know, being able to develop characters. It's like, all right, here's what happened. Here you go. You know, you know, they smash the time, they smash clips together in a timeline and that's what you get. Um, And that's what, and that's honestly, you know, the conversation we've had is if you put something out on YouTube anymore that has production value, that has music and that has a rhythm and has a story arc, people feel like it's fake because Mm -hmm. they're so used to seeing this, 
GoPro Handycam version of story that they don't trust it if it's done well. And that kills guys like us because we want to do it well. But there is an exception to the rule. Short form can be done with all of those things. Mm-hmm. But you know well, the one thing that it takes? Manpower. And money. Mm-hmm. Look at hard knocks. We've talked about hard knocks. We look at hard knocks as an example of what we would aspire to be in the hunting space or the outdoor space. And they're, they're putting out top-tier produced episodes from audio to visuals to gameplay to editing to everything in between, and they're doing it week to week. But they have a gigantic team and an HBO budget. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes all the difference in the world. And that's what I and I think that which this is a podcast that I want to get into later because I want to spend a whole time on it. But that gets into what what most of the time falls under my purview is when we have a client that comes to us that wants a quick turnaround and they want it to be high production value, but their budget isn't that. It's it's they want a film and follow YouTube channel show, which. We don't want to do, are we capable of doing 100%? Do we want to do it? No, because that, that isn't what we enjoy doing. But that's what they're, they've heard what so-and-so's budget is to produce their show, and they feel like they can come to us to do the same show, and it falls under my job to say, you can't do that show for that. And to educate the client, which is, like I said, going to be a whole nother podcast, you have to educate the client or the customer on what it takes to create what we're trying to create, like what we're trying to do with Bergara's uh, boot leather. There's a there's so much time and effort and planning that goes in before we ever get on the airplane to go. Um, and then there's so, so much time put into the editing room when we get back. Versus if we wanted to film that show like a hunting public, we could send one guy with no plan who just followed Chris around he brings the footage back. We mash the clips together, trim the dead spots where nothing happens, hit export. It would cost a tenth mm-hmm. of what we what we produce boot leather for. But boot leather is two producers flown usually to New Mexico, Colorado, somewhere out west, five-ish days at least hunting, sometimes more. Then we bring that footage back, and we're spending a week, if not two weeks sometimes with it to get it to the point to where it's going to ever see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Those you're not that we're not comparing apples to apples. And I think that is the education piece that I struggle with when we have someone come to us and want a Regaro's boot leather, but they have the budget for what hunting public's doing. And mm-hmm. those two things will never I don't see how they would ever come together. They, they, those are we're not, there's nothing wrong with either one of them. I want to put that out there like some people love watching the real and raw hunting public style of video. That isn't what I enjoy doing. That's not what I enjoy producing. I know it's not what you enjoy doing or producing. Can we do it? Absolutely. Um, That isn't what we want to do. As my grandmother says, if I had my druthers, we want to do what we're doing with boot leather. We want to take the time to create really good content, to tell really good stories, to put production value, to send two camera guys because it's always better with a two than one. And create a lasting piece that's for a brand that has legs that can live on even after that gun is 10 years old. I mean, there's still a piece there that they can be proud of and the amount of other content that comes out of it. But 
I think that right there and social media, I mean, social media has ruined us. Kind of like what you said is, you know, I see a big buck, I get iPhone video of a big buck and, and I later on that evening, I happen to kill him. Well, people aren't going to want to wait a year to see that hunt. They want to see it now. They want to see the YouTube version of that deer getting shot now. And that right there, that one thing, that one immediacy has led to a drop in production value, a drop in the prices that people can char- or are charging or can charge because the value to, to, to have the immediacy, it's the, the fast, good, and fast, good, and uh, cheap. You know, you can pick two of the three. And people are picking picking fast and cheap. They're not ever picking good. And that when they only pick fast and cheap, makes it really hard for guys like us to either A, get work and sustain work and then make any money when we're doing it. And I think that is the problem that we're having right now. You know, we, we talk about this all the time is we've been a part of some really, you know, medium to high level productions. And that's what we enjoy doing. But when we go out and we talk to people in the marketplace, that's not what they want. They want a hundred reels. They want, um, they want a hundred reels. They want, you know, a 10 part YouTube series and they want 10,000 images and they want it for five grand. It's like, uh, you're going to have to talk to somebody else, bud. Like that's not, we just can't do that. You know, and, and for you to hire someone in house to do it, one person to do all that stuff like I've got three people, speaking of anybody listening to the podcast, I've got three different companies that have reached out to me because of our podcast and because of our classes that are looking for producers right now because they want all that stuff and they want it as cheap as they possibly can. They want entry-level guys that can come in and they can do production, photography, editing, product stuff. They want to be able to do it all in-house, but they can pay, you know, a guy, 45 grand, they want him to move across the country. And I told all three of them, you're not going to get a guy that can do all that for 45 grand and will move across the country. You're just not going to do it. You have to pay, you know, that, that person's valuable mm-hmm. even more and so now than ever, you know? So I, I just, I, I want guys to, to realize first of all, their value and, um, and make sure the short form content is something you're proud of, you know, because that's the struggle that we've had is making sure that what we're putting out is what we're happy with and what we're, we're happy with doing. I mean, me and you've had this conversation how many times? So many times to where it's like, okay, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. Are we happy with it? Like, is that what we want to do? Is that the, I mean, me and you kind of had a, a moment on this last boot leather. There's some things I wanted to change about it. And you're like, but if we keep doing that, that's what everybody else is doing. And I love the fact that you push back. Even sometimes I want to punch you in the mouth when you push back. I do, I do, and I want, which I know you will always continue to do that. But like, we have created a template in the outdoor industry over the last 25, 30 years that, you know, hunting shows have been out there. And it's really hard to break that template and really mm-hmm. hard to break that mold. And, and if, you know, we can try some new things, we can do some different things. But the biggest, the two things, Here's, here's my opinion. This is Kayla's opinion. Take it for what it's worth. The two things that are going to break the industry mold in the outdoor space for outdoor content, take value off the kill and get away from film and follow, ver- no pro- production value kind of content. It's got to go back to a story that has a deeper meaning and the kill has got to lose value. 
and I don't mean like not having a kill in there, but the kill can't be the only reason people watch it. They can't. They don't tune in just because you killed a big deer or a big elk or ten turkeys. It's got to be something more, whether that's the entertainment value, whether that's the education value, whether that's the production value, whether that's the character that's on screen, whatever the case may be, there's got to be something more valuable than the quick turnaround time, immediacy, and watching something get shot. And I'll be the first to tell you, I mean, I've told you this, this is a conversation we had down there. I like watching a big deer and big elk get shot just as much as anybody, just as much as the next guy. Mm -hmm. But at this point in my life, I've seen enough for 10 lifetimes. So it's like, I want a little more than that. But I also have to, and I mean, we've had this conversation too. We also have to remember we are not the target audience of the content that we're creating. And that is something that I struggle with all the time. I struggle with that when I go to buy hunting equipment. I I struggle with that when we create content. Because the content that we want to consume, we're in the 1%. You know, maybe the 2% that want to see that. And that is a very hard pill for me to swallow. I know it's a very hard pill for you to swallow because we have aspirations to create things that are different and better than what's out there now. There's very few companies and and people that want to pay for it, but we have to take a step back. And that's kind of my argument when we were talking about what some of the changes you want to make is like, we want to change the mold. We want to break the mold, but we also are not the target audience. And I, I, I struggle with that. I really have a hard time saying this is better than this. Why does everybody still want this subpar product? Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's really hard for me. Um, even when I see, I mean, that same thing with products, I people see people wear things and use things. I'm like, what are they doing? Like spend the extra five, 10, 50, hundred bucks or whatever it is to buy the better thing. You know, it's, it's the same thing with the content. It's like you're watching this throwaway content, this film and follow, this thing that has no story, but, yeah, they killed something. whoop de freaking do I mean, you can do that too with enough money and enough time. It's not hard. I, don't, I just went on a really long rant. I apologize. That's I realize okay. I've been talking for a long time. It's all right. I haven't had to switch cameras. It's been nice. <laughs> oh, God. Just been sitting over here listening. Um, so... All preferences aside, we do end up having to do a lot of short form content. Well, let's and define. Let's def- Are you talking about short, short turnaround? Not, okay, I was about I, to say. I meant short turnaround. Yes, yes. So we do some pretty quick turnarounds. Uh, I know that we have a internal soft two week turnaround for a lot of our stuff. Um, obviously, that's not on everything. It's kind of on a project to project basis, um, but we try to get things turn around in two weeks and that's for web episodes and things of that nature um recently you just got back from doing some content with dud yeah and that's what i really wanted to dive into because if there's somebody who's the king of quick turnarounds and uh producing a lot of content it would be dud yeah and so i wanted to talk about some of the strategies and the approaches that you have when going up there to tackle kind of those mountains of of uh, requests yeah. from Dud. Yeah. So maybe lay out a little bit about what 
a content trip like what you just did looks like. And then uh, let's talk a little bit about how you go about managing, shooting, and turning all of those around within the time frame. Yeah, so um, Dudley and Knock on Archery are their own beast um, mm-hmm. in a very unique way. Um, Dudley has really figured out what his viewers want. He's figured out what moves the needle for Knock on Archery. He's figured out what he's the best at. And uh, and now I've been working with him since 2018, and we've really gotten a relationship on I know exactly what he wants. I know how he wants it done. And I think, and we've talked about that, the value of getting a client that that you get to know and that stays with you and you know their quirks, you know their ins and outs, you know what they like and don't like. It just Mm -hmm. makes your life as a producer, editor, whatever, easier. You know, same thing with Chuck, same thing with Dudley. You know, now, you know, we're getting there with Bergara going into year two. So it's it's one of those things to where you, you get this groove and you figure out, kind of what they like and 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 I'll tell you right now and and Dud'll tell you this too is I struggled with him the first year because on the hunt side he's very much a film and follow not he'll let you produce things if the hunt's slow enough mm-hmm. if the hunt's not slow he's not letting you produce it he's hunting like he's he understands that his his followers and his customers want to see him use the products and get it done I get it he has been that guy for since 2010. Long time, you know. So he's he's not he's not new to the game, but so when I go up there, I'm usually doing. I think the most videos we ever did was this last time I went up there, and usually I go up there for four to six days, and I go up to his place in Iowa, and I stay at his house. We get up in the morning. We kind of create a rough plan, which usually always gets thrown to crap by the mm-hmm. end of the day. And then we start filming. Most of the time, his videos can be either one-takers, one-shot wonders, which those are my favorite because he, he doesn't really fumble. Some of them will need some B-roll. Some of them will need some you know, shooting stuff. So they're all different, but like this last time – he wanted me and Joe, mainly Joe, to go through his YouTube, find out what questions he's getting very often, and essentially create a, you know, an FAQ type video sheet. Mm-hmm. So he did that, and this I don't know if you guys can see that on camera, but here's the sheet that Joe created. It's really long, but each one of those is different videos. And then we completed... I should have counted this before. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. 32, if I counted that right, we completed 32 of them in roughly four and a half days. And uh, it was, honestly, if I had to guess, Probably five or six solid hours of camera in hand every day. And um, we would probably knock out seven to ten a day, depending on how in-depth they were. Like the last one we did, he's doing a whole new 101 series, which he's already teased it, so nobody's hearing anything he knew. 
but it's going to be a five-parter, and it's two hours and 20 minutes. So technically 32 videos is really 37 because one of them is a, is a five-parter. Mm-hmm. But um, the way that he does it, he, he, he's, he's so in-depth and he knows archery so well is he'll look at the question like let me just like me let me pull one up like um uh, practice the perishable was one of them but I'm gonna like get one of the questions um how to avoid facial pressure like that's one of the questions that he got so we did a video on how to avoid facial pressure and some of the things and literally he looks and he goes how to avoid facial pressure. All right, and he holds the bow up and says, ready? I'm like, yeah, tell me what we're doing. He goes, talking about how to reduce facial pressure. And I'm like, three, two, one, go. And he just goes. And thank God I took that easy rig with me because otherwise I would have been holding Because he wants mm-hmm. you to handhold because he's moving to the press. He's moving to the shooting machine. He's clipping in. He's drawing back. So, like, you can't do it on a tripod. So you have to handhold it. And I took And I almost didn't take it, and I'm so glad I did. I took the easy rig, which I did a video. I think it'll come out pretty quick on shooting in the dojo with the easy rig. And it holds the camera and takes all the weight off of your, essentially your arms and your shoulders and puts it kind of on your lower back. And man, it was a game changer for that. I'll never go to duds without one again. Mm -hmm. And we would just, and he would just literally start talking. And what he would do is if he'd ever fumble, he literally just pick up where he fumbled and keep going. And when I'd edit, I'd bring it in and I can see in my timeline, I can see with my waveforms where there was a gap. I can literally go to every gap because he never stops talking. I told him, I was like, if you ever run for office, you'll be the filibuster guy. <laughs> I was like, you just talk about archery and you'll you'll bust anything you want to filibuster. But his, there'll be a small gap where I'll just pick him back up. Like we've got this system to where I can see that gap. I'll go in there. I'll cut that gap out. I'll either have my B-roll or I'll hide the cut somehow with a jump cut or something. And then we keep rolling. And, you know, when the videos were five minutes to some of them were 20-ish minutes of just straight walkthroughs. Like one of them was um, getting rid of cam lean or, or setting your bow up for indoor season after deer season's over. And he just took his target bow. He's like, hey, this bow's been sitting in the corner all year. I've not been using it. Here's what I'm going to look at. He's like, my cam's leaning a little bit. And my D-loop's starting to turn because my string is stretched as the bow's been sitting here since I haven't shot it last year. So here I'm going to go through and show you how I'm going to get my bow ready. And he puts it in the press. He goes through the thing. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Putting a turn here. I'm cutting my D-loop off here. And I'm just following him as he's going, just kind of like follow action like we've talked about. And then anytime he would fumble, I would pick up a B-roll shot to f- cover the fumble, which was rare. I'd cut those out and marry the two clips together bring them into Premiere, make sure there was no, you know, make sure Premiere wasn't screwing me over. And then I'd set in, in and out points. And then I'd go in and I would create a vertical with, um, was it right quick, right click? Yeah, the auto reframe time. Auto reframe, which worked 90% of the time. Some of the, some of the videos were, I, I, and, I, and, and this is something I did do too. And I'd made a conscious effort of it is I shot, a lot of this center frame, and I shot it a little bit wider than I normally would. Mm-hmm. So auto reframe had a little more room to work. Yeah, which if we we probably should do a whole podcast on that eventually one of these days, or you should that would be a really good reel for you to do again. I know you've done one before, but I like did. really really in depth one. But we went through ninety percent of them, and as long as I didn't get really tight on stuff, and there wasn't a lot of motion or movement, like you know quick camera movements, it it nailed it pretty good. But I told him on a couple of them, I'm like, 
I don't know if this one's going to work vertically. I'm like this. I was like, I'm going to let it run through and see what it does. And I was like, and I can move some stuff around, but because there was one, I can't remember what it was. Oh, there was two people talking there on both sides of the frame. I'm like, you're not going to, this one ain't going to work vertically. I was like, it's not going to be able to do what you want to do unless we go in and cut it all up and make it a big pain in the butt. And he's like, it wasn't a big deal. But so that was 32 finished videos, 37 really, and then all cut into vertical. So essentially 68 videos that are going to get him through the next three months of being able to mm-hmm. schedule. And then he'll he'll fill in gaps on social media. And there'll be questions that come through that that he'll pick up that once we get back in, I think he wants me to come back into February and we'll do it again, you know, kind of go through the whole process. And he'll see how those do, see which ones did well, see which ones didn't do well. And the the YouTube will give him all the information he needs and then it sells products. But in terms of like like how we do it, like it's just I really think I just figured out what he liked because originally like I used to try and two-camera him and add production value and he just wasn't about that. He's like, that's he's like, I know what you're trying to do, but and if it was just the occasional three, four, five product videos a year, yeah, we'd blow them out. We'd make them really cool over the top, light them, do all this stuff. Like you did one for him. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he only lets me come up there when he's got uh, yeah, time, he's got fancy stuff. Yeah, to do. fancy stuff to do. Yeah, so <laughs> like, it's like me to come up there to yeah. do the quick stuff. Well, and he because and he he like because I've done it with him. I, I I wish I knew the number of videos I've done with Dudley. It's in the hundreds, but more like, than that. We've a couple we've, hundreds. We've just. I think it's. I think there's. It's so valuable though to create that, that that flow with somebody, and that's just what we've gotten, you know. And he knows what to expect from me. I know what to expect from him. And honestly, now, and I told him, and I, and I've gotten this way with a couple of clients. Like me and him are friends now, and I can tell him like that sounded really stupid, and he'll be like, "Yeah, you're probably right. We should do that again." And I think that's important. I think that's important when you have somebody and you can say. Hey, uh, you look tired. Are you okay? Like, or you look that shirt looks stupid. You probably shouldn't wear that. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of thing. Um, whereas some clients they'll walk in and they'll be wearing something or doing something or saying something or acting some way, and you're like, "Why do you have a clay mustache right now? You shouldn't do that. That doesn't look <laughs> good on you." Like whatever that is, but like you once you create that that connection with somebody and you have that friendship, I think that makes that so much better. But just doing stuff with him, man, it's um and hunting with him so much fun and and he's just he's just a nut, man. But he's when he's there, you're after it. You're getting after mm-hmm. it. And then you then he cooks you an awesome steak and you watch his show with him. I've got him watching newsroom, by the way. Oh really? I talked about it the whole time we were there and he's like, I'm gonna have to watch this stupid show. He's already on like he's already halfway through season two. I'm really? Like, yeah, I told him he's gonna <laughs> love it. Butthole. That's crazy. You always get people on that show. That's the best show ever. It really is. He's wanting me to watch Dexter, though. Dexter's good. Yeah. he's He told me i got to watch Dexter, so yeah. that's next on my list. Dexter's good. I really like Dexter. So, it sounds like if we were going to put this into steps for people, step one, if you're tasked to create a really short turnaround stuff or – a lot of it, either or, they kind of go hand in hand. Usually mm-hmm. when it's short turnaround, you've got a lot of stuff to do. The first thing that you probably want to do is really get a good understanding of what the client is looking for and 
what is achievable and attainable within those bounds, within the bounds of how many you have to do, how much time you have to work, and really define that. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you know exactly what Dudley wants, uh, and you were able to get that way by basically working with him for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't get that. Yeah. You don't get that privilege or luxury. And so you got to do a really good job on the front end of saying, okay, how do you want these to look? Mm -hmm. And that could be a discussion, but it can also be something where you say, hey, send me some examples of like what you want this videos that are already out in the wild that you want this to look like. Examples are very important. And then your client can send you however many reels that, or videos. I'm assuming they're reels because that's usually what what quick turnaround stuff is these days. But they send you these video examples, and then it's your job as the producer to break those down and understand the elements that are involved in them. And then being able to go to the client or having the discussion real time say, okay, so this has this B-roll elements, it's got hunt footage, it's got this, that, and the other thing. This video, while it's short, isn't something that we can make 50 of in two days. Yeah, no. We need, like, we would have to do this, and then we'd have to spend time and do this, and then we'd have to maybe go to another location and do this. And so having the knowledge of exactly what goes on under the hood will allow you to, to help really narrow in the expectations and define exactly what it is that you guys are going to do. Because you can take a video like that and go, okay, well, this isn't realistic in two days. Mm -hmm. This is realistic in a week. Can we do it in a week? And they might say, yes, boom, you're good to go. If they're like, no, we really want to do two days or we've only got budget to have you here for two days, then you can say, okay, well, we can do this element of it and this element of it, and we can swap this element with this or get rid of this altogether and you lose a little bit of X, Y, and Z, but you also lose the time it took to create that. Mm -hmm. And basically then you can have a very clear idea of exactly what you need to shoot and how you need to shoot it so that when you show up, you know exactly in your head what the final product is going to look like. Because if you don't know what the final product is going to look like, there's a lot of time in the shooting and editing process that is quote-unquote, the discovery process, right? You're trying to figure out exactly what it's going to look like, and that takes time because you may do something and it doesn't work. You may shoot something and you don't use it. You may not shoot something and realize you need it and have to go reshoot it. You may be editing and make something and send it to the client, and they go, oh, I I didn't need X, Y, and Z. I just wanted this. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of burnt time. So if you can define a lot of that stuff up front, and be really clear with who you're working with, then you can cut out a lot of time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that uh, in a lot of the clients that you've worked with with, for a long time and have developed a style over time, obviously this isn't, you didn't walk in, sit down and develop this style in an afternoon, but you have a very good idea of when you go with Chuck, what Chuck wants and what to shoot, how much of it to shoot, how long the clips need to be, 
how much interviews you're going to need to cover whatever it is because you've been doing it so long. And so you come back and have a very uh, condensed library of footage to pull from because you already know exactly how it's going to go mm-hmm. before you even show up. Yeah. Which cuts your editing time drastically. Yeah, and that came with, you know, like what you said with Chuck. Like, I don't even go to give what Chuck wants. I do the way that I want it because I know Chuck's going to be good with it. Right. You know, but that came with that came with years and years of working together sure. and him, him, him trusting me. Mm-hmm. And he knows I'm never going to put something out that's going to make him look stupid or make a brand look dumb or, you know, put him in a precarious situation. He, I mean, he knows that, which now, you know, Dudley does too. But Dudley's a little more affirmative with how he wants things, and he wants it yesterday. Yeah. You know, but what, what – you were saying, I think, you know, that front-end communication is crazy important. But just like you were saying, like, if you say tell the client it's going to take a week and they say they only have two days, well, one of your options is, okay, well, we can probably do most of that in two days, but I need to bring another second shooter or a third shooter or, you know, or are we going to have time on the back end to edit this, you know, have longer time to edit this on the back end? You know, there's always options to be able to, you know, it's going to add add probably budget to the project. But if they only have two days and you've got to burn it to the ground in two days and you bring two or three shooters, you know, one guy who's just doing scenics, one guy who's just doing the night lapses or one guy who's just doing the interviews mm-hmm. while you're out getting the B-roll and somebody else is getting the deer shots or whatever the case may be, if they only have budget for one person for two days, there's only so much you can do in that amount of time. So, Sometimes, you know, and then we're talking about the difference between a cameraman and a producer again. Sometimes you can only do so much as one person. And, I, you know, that's how it was when I first started freelancing right after, I, you know, I left Sub 7 is like I got to the point to where, like, I'm only one guy. I can only do so much. And then, you know, I wanted to hire you. And it's like, okay, well, I've got all this stuff. I also have all this stuff that wants to be done, but I can't do this and this. But if I had Ryer... He could do this, and I could do this. And then it got to the point where I was doing this, and you were doing this, and we also needed to do this. And it's like, okay, now we have clay. And mm-hmm. then it, so that and that's how that's how we've continued to grow, and we've gotten to the point to where we've gotten really good at we've gotten really good at the short turnaround top stuff, even though that's not exactly what we want to do all the time. We've gotten good at it because that's become the expectation, and we've gotten really good at it. And having pretty dang good production value associated with it when we have that clear idea and we've done a good job on the front end. Mm-hmm. We've also walked into some projects, you know, sometimes it was our fault, sometimes it was the client's fault, where we thought we knew what they wanted. We go in and we produce it, we edit it, and we give it back to them, and they're like, that's not what we had in mind. Mm-hmm. And then me and you look at each other like, huh? <laughs> that's That's exactly what we talked about. You know, we literally line this sucker out. I'm thinking of one episode in particular that you had a lot of work on the front end that was a TV show. We talked about it at nauseum. You produced it, and then they're like, I don't see any big deer. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. That was never in the discussion. Like, no, 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 no. Like, here's the, here's the literal outline we laid out. This is to the T, but they didn't like it. So that is also going to happen you have to be because and then your quick turnaround time suffers because yeah you got to go back to the drawing board you we had to re-edit that show what two or three times pretty much yeah but the, the, the biggest thing with that is and this is another thing that just kills me sometimes 
And again, it goes back to I'm not the target audience. What we do as a creative and the content we put out, either the shows, the reels, the photos, the whatever, it's so subjective. I've taken photos I thought were awesome. And then someone else will look at them and be like, oh, that's a good picture. And I'm like, that is a freaking spectacular picture. <laughs> you know, and I've watched videos that make Badlands Film Festival and make the podium. And I'm like, what? That was terrible. And then we put something out and then nobody watches it or don't even get, you know, they don't even watch it to pick it in there, I guess is what happened. I don't even know what happened. So it's like, we're not on the same page. The subjectivity of being a creative is really hard sometimes because you'll you'll spend so much time on a project or a photo or an intro or a reel or an episode and you'll love it. You'll fall you'll fall in love with the whole thing. And then somebody'll come watch it and be like, "Eh, it's okay." What? What are you, what are you talking about? You know, there's been things that that was the, that was Chance's job at Sub7. He was our production manager. And he would literally come in an episode and he would watch it. And he wouldn't say a word. He'd just sit there and watch it. And then he'd go, I'm bored. And then you'd, you'd stop and be like, why are you bored? He's like, I don't know. Everything was good. Pace was great right there when he started talking about that thing. I'm bored. So it's like, okay, now I as a producer, as a creative, I have to go, all right, why is he bored? I really liked that. Why is he bored? He's that new set of eyes that came in and watched it. And everything was going great until this one spot. But his subjectivity and my subjectivity were different, you know. So we have to now we have to reconcile that. You know, we both do that to each other. We do that with Clay. We go in and we watch things. And you're like, hey, this is really good, but this this section feels really flat. Why does this? Why is this section flat? Is it the song choice? Is it the shot choices? Is it, you know, do we need an interview here? Do we need voiceover here? Do we need to ramp this up to bring this down? Like, w- what is it? And that's kind of the hardest thing is everything you do. You might love it. Your mama's going to love it no matter what you do. But is the viewer going to love it? And that's that's the hardest part is everything's so subjective, nothing's objective, and just being able to to, to cope with that because I know I've, I've done stuff that I thought was incredible. And then people watch it and like, oh, man, that was pretty good. I was like, no, I want you to, like, give me a back slap. Like, that was – like, I worked hard on that. That just – that ain't how it works. Mm-mm. So – that that's that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes is you work really really hard on something you have a really good idea you make you know you get an incredible shot that you you know it took you 47 times to get and then it and it then you watch people watch you like oh they're going to light up and they watch it and they're like but they have no idea what went into that right that's frustrating to me frustrates the crap out of me yeah i've been working on trying to be better about that personally yeah even like with myself. Uh, I'm just and, letting you edit everything so I don't have to feel that way. <laughs> well, I've been trying to, to make make uh, edits and try to remove myself from them as much as possible. Yeah. And it's a really fine line because you have to have ideas and you have to think the ideas are good, mm-hmm. right? Because if you don't have ideas and you don't think they're good, then... What are you editing? Yeah. But you also have to be able to step back and look at it from an outside perspective and go objectively, okay, I liked this, that, and the other thing, but did it work? And then being able to say, it's not working. 
how can I make it work? What do I need to switch? What do I need to do? Do I need to throw it away? Um, this last ep or not the last episode, it's still in progress. It probably, it won't be out when this comes, when this is published. Um, I intentionally cut a lot of stuff knowing that I was going to throw a lot of it away. And I, that's a, that's a mind F right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's something else we could talk about one day. Yeah. I, I cut stuff knowing I was going to throw some of it away, but not knowing what I was going to throw away yet. Yeah. And I cut it so that I would have a better idea of how that scene works and how it works in the hole. And then as I got through the hole, by the time you get to the end, then you can go, okay, this scene is really weak. This is the one that needs to go. But until you get through the hole, you may not know. And if you make that decision sometimes on the front end, then you may not be able to say, oh, yeah, that was good. I want to keep it in. Yeah. Because you didn't cut it. You wrote it off immediately. And like trying to cut things with multiple tracks. Like, I mean, there are some scenes I cut four different ways with different music to try to see which one actually worked. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And that's not something that I've done a lot of before. A lot of the times I'm going into an edit and I'm only progressing as I feel like I have finished this section and it's good. Mm -hmm. And I've realized that that really ties you to it. If you work a section and work a section and work a section and then move on and do the same thing over and over again, by the time you get to the end, it's really tight. It looks really good. But if you have to lose something, you don't have, you don't want to because yeah. you, you, in your head, this is all like exactly how it should be. Yeah, you're in love with all of it. So if you cut without tying yourself to it, and just going, I'm just going to cut these to see what works, see what doesn't work, see what kind of vibes I can get out of it. By the end, you'll have some stuff that works. You'll have some stuff that is kind of in the middle, and you'll have some stuff that you don't, that you know that now you don't want. And it makes it a lot easier to throw it out. I mean, how many we threw out? Four scenes already. Um, and there are maybe three other scenes that I immediately right now know that I could lose if I had to, if it was like, Hey, it's too long or it's too slow or whatever. And it's, it is tough to cut that way, but I mean, I think that's what you have to do. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes you just have to cut. You think that's maturing as an editor too? Do you think your younger editor self would have been able to part with things that you had worked hard to edit, even though the client says, Hey, that whole section between three thirty three and four fifteen needs to go, and you're like, "That's my favorite scene." Um, it's hit or miss. I think, I think it is getting more experienced and doing it for longer. Oh, that switched. I don't know why. Say hi to the camera. Hi. Um, and I I've been reading a lot of books. From <laughs> I'm a reader of many leather bound books, yeah. Did you see that book I got from the thrift shop? <laughs> yeah, I did. I saw your post. It's a it. photography book from 1939. It's very dense. I will read some of it. 
I ain't reading that whole thing. It's like that's it's like go as, on your shelf in your office. It's as thick as the Bible. Wow. And it's got like technical drawings of lenses. Wow. Which is a little. That's a lot. Yeah. I don't know if I really need to know all that's that. That's a lot for you. Yeah, that's a lot for me. <laughs> um, also, it's like from 1939, so some of the stuff isn't super crazy relevant now because they were digital back then, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> No, Mir- they're not. Mirrorless. They have like seven sections on developing film. Oh, wow. With, and like the chemical processes and stuff, which I, we're not doing that. No. I mean, I've thought about it, but not for work, for yeah. like a hobby. But I've been reading a lot of stuff from uh, professional editors at very high levels, people who are editing TV shows and movies and feature-length documentaries and stuff like that. And... Over and over again, that's one of the things they say. They say in order to be a successful editor, you've got to walk that line between having ideas and defending your ideas, but also intaking other opinions and trying to make those work too. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, in most senses, nobody cares if the editor likes it. Yeah, The only person who who needs to like it is the audience. Yeah. And the only way that you can fully figure out if an audience is going to like it is by showing it to people, figuring out what is working and what is not working when you show it to them. Yeah. And then being able to objectively step back and go, okay, well this thing that I thought was really neat or this, you know, storyline that I thought was interesting or this emotion that I thought that I was going to give the audience they're not getting. Yeah. They don't like this. This is not connecting. Mm -hmm. This emotion is not selling. And your job as an editor is to figure out how to sell those things. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, I think too, being more like watching other people's edits and being somebody who then needs to like critique the edit and say, Hey, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. If I'm not willing to do that on my own work, Mm -hmm. then, uh, it would be very hypocritical of me to expect other people to do that on their work. Yeah. So I have to be very willing to intake the same kind of feedback that I would give to somebody else. So I don't know. I mean, a little bit of it is maturing. I think a little bit of it is, um, a little bit of it is just being more experienced. And I think when you get more experienced, you get more tools under your belt. And you can also see footage from a lot of different angles and you can understand better. Like, it doesn't have to go like that. It can go a different way. Or you know that you can solve problems and it's not just an equation every time. There's Mm -hmm. all kinds of different elements. Yeah. And everything changes. Yeah. And when you change one part of the edit, another part of the edit has to change. But, like, when you're first starting out, you don't, like, it's hard to see the footage anyway at all, mm-hmm. you know? And then you start to be able to get a feel for the footage. And then, as you hopefully mature as an editor, I think you start to develop that tool set where you can start to really play with the footage more. And so then, when somebody takes away that scene that you made, it doesn't feel like they've taken away the one thing you thought was going to work. Yeah. Like you're like, okay, well I like that scene, but Mm. I know I can make another one. Yeah. You didn't just like jack the whole thing up. Yeah. 
I notice I notice so many more things now. You know, it's it's like I don't like watching things with people that aren't producers like myself. Like my kids, for instance, I watched. We were looking for a new movie for me and my kids to watch yesterday at my parents' house after church, and we of course picked Nacho Libre. And I'm like, the whole movie's center frame. It bothered bothered me so much. You know, it's a stupid, over-the-top comedy, you know, mm-hmm. with Jack Black, but the whole movie's center frame. Like, everything in it's center frame. And it bothered me so much. Like, why is everything center frame the whole time? And they would leave these long, like, they would leave these tags on the ed- on the cuts sometimes that didn't need to be left. Like, sometimes, you know, it's for comedic effect or dramatic effect. And I'm like, eh, I don't know why they did that. Like, it just bothered me. And I couldn't enjoy Nacho freaking Libre. And then, Do you think maybe they left the tags on there to make it purposefully awkward? Maybe Nacho Libre maybe, is an awkward. Maybe character. they did, but like I don't know. I, it it didn't hit, didn't land with me because I'd seen it before. Mm-hmm. But like the second time, I was just noticing things that I didn't notice the first time because the first time I watched it was probably in high school or college when I watched it. Yeah. But there's a scene I need to find it in Billions. I've been watching Billions, which is getting better. It's it's getting it's a really good power struggle, but there's a scene. It's happened a couple. I should have wrote it down, but it shows the importance of music so so well. Is there's a scene he's talking to his wife and they're like in their closet or in their safe or something, and he's going through this really hard time. Like there's like an indictment coming down or something, and it's like this kind of this somber, emotional music where you're like kind of worried for him, and then his wife says something essentially like, "Put your big boy pants on," essentially. Mm-hmm. And the song changes. This song's going, and you hear that song coming over the top of it, and it's like this. All right, it's about to go down. Song, and like it just changes the whole feel of like I just felt sorry for this guy. Now he's about to go scorched earth, and mm-hmm. that's all I had to hear was that song change, and everything about how I felt about this scene. It told me everything I needed to know. I knew exactly what was going to happen when he left that safe or that room or whatever it was. And I just, I, I like it. And they've done it a couple of times in there and they nail it every time. And I've never noticed a song change hit like it has in that one for me. And it was really good. And then, you know, I was at, when I was at Dudley's, we were talking about movies because him and Sharon like are binge watchers like crazy. Like he'll work, 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 work. And then he'll have dinner and like seven, him and Sharon will sit down and like watch him, like watch a movie or a series. And he was talking about how much he liked Oppenheimer. He's like, you like Oppenheimer? I was like, hated Oppenheimer. He's like, why? And I, and I told him, you know, the, the scenes that I thought needed to go and like this didn't make any sense and this didn't make any sense. And he goes, huh, yeah, you're right. Didn't need anything. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, I didn't like it at all. He's like, well, I mean, it was, it was, I guess it was pretty good now that you say all that. I'm like, I was, I was like, it was, it was long for the sake of being long. Mm-hmm. Like I it just, I'm not saying I mean I love Christopher Nolan, but not my favorite. But um, you know, you just notice things and you don't I feel like I can't enjoy things like I used to. Watch Napoleon with him. No, didn't like it. Last I, five movies I've watched have been terrible. I heard it wasn't good. No, it wasn't. I also it's, heard it was like not historically accurate. So no. I was I was I, you had me you like if you're to, gonna make you a history. You didn't get movie. to see Napoleon be Napoleon either. It was terrible. I've, I don't know. I need I need a good a good movie that's out right now. Oh, watch Saltburn. Don't watch Saltburn. 
Oh, yeah. Cleo and I watched Saltburn. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> yeah. I watched it with Dudley and Sharon. Oh, and Dudley goes, <laughs> Dudley goes, what movie did you pick? And I'm like, dude, I heard this was good. So it was dark and weird. Holy crap. Yeah, I, I, uh, we watched it and I knew going into it, it was going to be weird. I'm, I'm not sure. Weird. I didn't know. It I'm was not sure. I really that. understood the immensity of weird. <laughs> Me either. Um, but Dudley called one of the parts. Did when he, he? When, he, when he drinks out of the tub, he's like, he's about to drink out of the tub. I'm like, oh no. yeah, I I saw it coming. I saw. I, that. I knew dude, that. Dude, I didn't. Yeah, I knew. I that. was like, oh god. Yeah. Uh, like <laughs> as far as I watched it because I had read in that cinematographer magazine. I had read an article. Yeah. From the cinematographer about yeah. how they shot it and a lot of the decisions they made and i was like i'd like to see it no, because it was, it was beautifully like, done but it was shot incredibly yeah. well oh god like it looked really good um overall though yeah it's a weird really weird movie do real, not real. do not watch with <laughs> like honestly i think you gotta be 25 really to watch that like <laughs> yeah, you gotta really have, do you, you gotta have been around the block. That one's not R, whatever's not NC seventeen either. Like you need to go whatever's above that. Yeah, it, it's got some adult themes. Jesus Christ, um, man! Dude, when he rips that thing out of her throat at the end. Oh yeah, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was. I mean, that wasn't my. That, I, the, I called, there was one shot that was incredibly weird to me, but we won't talk about that one no, on the air because I know we can't. Which one you're talking about? Uh, but I I couldn't. I. I called it. I knew that guy was the freaking culprit the whole time. I knew what he was trying to do the whole time. I didn't call I didn't call the very ending, but I knew like he had a motive the whole time and that he was going to I figured it out pretty spoiler, spoiler, pretty quick. I knew he was going to I knew he was going to kill all them people. I knew he was. I, I had every certainty he was about to kill all them people. I knew it. Yeah, I uh didn't see the reason why and did not see how weird he was. I figured out he was going to kill everybody before I figured out how weird he was. Yeah, your dog's Ranger's losing it. his mind over yeah. something. He was yeah. howling earlier. Uh, yeah, I mean, Saltburn, I I would say it's it's worth a watch. I know, dude. I don't because know. you got to be somebody who's like into, or not into, that's a... <laughs> That's a weird yeah, word to use. Um, after. We're going to have to have a talk if you're in No, that. no, no, no. <laughs> you got to be somebody who likes, uh, like, if you watch Dexter or Hannibal, like, shows like that, then you'll be okay with Saltburn. If you don't watch shows that have some pretty intense adult, like, themology oh, and some very disturbing, uh, <laughs> very disturbing mental scenes, then don't watch don't watch Saltburn. As far as like how it was shot and how they edited it to make it I'd look over as uncomfortable. I'd look over at Dud and he'd be sitting there with the mouth open going, Oh He's like, What why did you pick this movie? I'm well, like, what, I don't know. What's crazy about it is as horrifying as it is, it is that horrifying because of how they shot and edited it. Like they shot and edited it perfect to elicit that feeling like I got done watching the movie and I looked over at Clay. I was like, I, I need to go shower. <laughs> yeah. And we need to like, we need to watch Step Brothers or something. Yes. Cause that's I exactly feel what, dirty. That's exactly what we said. We're like, all right, comedy next. Yeah. Well, we need a good, like a I, good Ted too. After this, I felt dirty oh, after yeah. having, I was like, was I a part of that? No, oh, I feel gosh, gross, dude. And, but that's, they I meant to, I meant entirely to call you, yeah, pull you into you. that. Yeah. 
through their editing choices and how they shoot things. and They cast a great dude for that, too, because you mm-hmm. can tell that guy's unstable. Big time unstable. Mm-hmm. Lord have mercy. Yeah. And I gave it four out of five stars just because it was so good at being but horrifically, yeah. horrifically uh, horrifying. Yeah. Well, one thing that they never explained, I know that like, I think they like called him sir. I'm assuming he was like royalty. But where did dude get the money to buy that house? First and foremost, like that wasn't a house. I don't that think that wasn't a mansion. That wasn't a castle. That thing was enormous. I think it's just one of them old money. It's just old money. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't. I don't want to throw any more spoilers. I'll ask. I'll, I'll ask you these questions afterwards. But I had so many questions. I'm trying to think. I had I'm, so many questions after that movie was over. I'm like, but how's he going to afford to pay for that whole? Like, <laughs> there's staff. There's. Oh, I don't think he has to worry about that. We we'll probably I killed he, them all. No, no, no. I mean, like, he's got all their money. Oh. Yeah. Oh, she did sign it all. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's right. got like, I mean, I think at that level, you're 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 looking at aristocracy, <sighs> like people who have had money since the English still were the rulers of the world. Yeah. Gosh. I'm trying to think of a. Hold on. Let me go through my. I'm trying to think. I watched something else. I I've I've got letterboxed, and so I'm I review everything I watch. Oh really? Mm-hmm. What's letterbox? It's like a. So it's this app. And it like has a bunch of movies, and oh, so you, you can go, like you can look at reviews and you can look up movies, but you can also log when you watched it and rate your movies, and you can really? make you can make movie lists of like your top movies and all this kind of stuff. Dude, why is mine just not finding out about this? Is this one? Right? Yeah, this can, one right here. You can also like people make lists. So sometimes I want to watch a documentary, so I'll like search documentaries on Netflix, and there's like a list that has every documentary on Netflix mm-hmm. and then I filter them by like audience rating mm-hmm. and then look through them and go, okay, I like that one. Like we watched one. But it's the not other. Rotten Tomatoes, is it? Because no, no, no. Rotten Tomatoes, like you'll see some of their ratings for some no. of the movies that come out and they're like rating them so low. And then the audience scores like nineties. Honestly, my, I mean, you got to keep in mind that when you have an app called letterbox and it's specifically for rating movies, like you're the audience of, people who use the app are people who like movies. Mm-hmm. So you're not really like, you're not going to get the general audience score because the general audience score isn't rating their movies on an app. I'm, I'm, but, I'm signing up for this right now. Uh, I'm trying to think I'm going to go here and see what I've watched lately and see if I could. Um, cause I need a good movie in my life. Cause I haven't uh, seen a good one in a minute. You could watch the beekeeper, the beekeeper? with Jason Statham. It's in theaters right now, or it was. Things go out of theaters so so fast. It's uh, it's basically Jason Statham just murking people. And it's called the Beekeeper. Yeah, there's a storyline behind it. I would say that overall, you go to that movie because you just want to watch action. The storyline is kind of a little shoddy. They don't explain some stuff. One of the characters I wanted to punch in the face the whole time because <laughs> I just hated the character. Uh. But, like, as far as Jason Statham just kicking butt, yeah. it's fun. You know, it's, it's like a callback to the old action movies where it's just action for the sake of it. Gotcha. Uh, let's see. Oh, I watched Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace last night. It's the first time I've seen it. What? Yeah. Watched it last night. Yeah, the, the, so it's asking me some movies I've seen. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. talking about Get Out. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not watching that. Yeah. I don't watch scary movies. Uh, Oppenheimer, one star. Yeah, I uh, 
I gotta say, I didn't love it. What? I didn't love episode one of Star Wars. How? How not? It was really cheesy. Well, it was made like when in the eighties. I don't know. And I like I tried to put that past me. <laughs> like just some story stuff. It was okay. Um, I'm still gonna watch the other ones, but I didn't love that one. Right off the bat, dude. So. I finally watched Dune. Uh, is, was it very boring? No. It, well, it just ended like in a very weird place, which well, I, know they're they're, I, to, I know they're yeah. coming out with the second one. and Because and when it ended, I'm like, what? Like, we're just now getting into the story. So that made sense, which I'm, I'm currently rating these things right now. Salt burn. <laughs> <laughs> um, Iron Claw was very good. It's incredible. Incredibly depressing. That's what, but it's uh, very good. It's you with, told me about that. Yep, yeah, you really told good. me that one. Uh, See, I'm not Prometheus. A, what's Prometheus? It's uh Have alien, you seen the new one? Movie. Have you seen the new one? Um, holy crap, we've been talking an hour. The new um Godzilla minus one or whatever. No, I heard it's really good. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. I couldn't convince Cleo to go to that one with me. She doesn't of like Godzilla movies. Four Gump, five stars. Seven, five stars. Anyways, I'll have to figure out a good movie for you to watch. Django. You know, uh, you know, it wasn't interesting. I watched a documentary called My Kid Could Paint That. It's a documentary from the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. It was, so the reason I watched it was because I'm reading a book, uh, the document that documentary book. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it has four documentaries with like a breakdown of the documentaries. And that yeah. was one of the documentaries it wanted you to watch. Uh, and actually it was a really good, it was a really good documentary and it didn't look good because it was shot on a video camera in like the two thousands. Oh really? So like you can tell that it was a video camera. Yeah. Like it just doesn't look good, but story wise it was really good. It's about a, uh, so you could look past the fact that it was shot terribly yeah, yeah. and still. So it was a basically about, there was this four year old girl who like painted, right? Her dad was an amateur painter just for fun. And one day she asked if she could paint and then he gives her a canvas and stuff like that. And just, she paints and some like dude sees the painting. And is like, Holy crap. That's really good. One thing leads to another. She's selling there. The family is selling her paintings for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars at art shows. Nice. And so it's about, that and then there's a bunch of stuff that happens in there that was fascinating and like the documentary producer set out to uh set out to make a documentary that was a critique of modern art because like her the painting she made i mean as a four-year-old the paintings she made were basically modern art that abstract kind of like you know, you don't really know they what it is. Like they were done by a four-year-old. Yeah. Nice. But he set out to be, because people are like, well, why would I buy that for a million dollars? My kid could paint that. Okay, well, here's a four-year-old who's painting it and selling it for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, or tens of thousands of dollars. And so he started out wanting to, like, explore that. Yeah. And then over the course of the documentary, things happen, and he ends up, there ends up being like another 
facet to it that he has to like kind of explore and come to grips with as the documentary maker. And it was really good. Hmm. I watched that Sunday and I really enjoyed it. I'm and it's not something that I would have like picked out to watch. I watched another one called the shirkers. I never heard of that one. It's, uh, it was about, gosh, darn it. I'm going to forget the name of the country, but essentially like, a um, an Asian island country. I forget what the, what country it was now. And that's bad. But uh, essentially this like 16 to 18 year old girl like wants to make this movie. And so she like enlists the help of all of her friends, does all this pre-production work, shops it around, does the whole nine yards and goes to make this basically indie film. That's, incredibly weird like super weird stuff weird assault burn no like weird like indie film weird yeah, you know yeah i can't really explain it because it's like kind of, it's just an odd yeah thing but she goes and and goes to make all of this and the dude who was the professor of the uh film school that she was studying under and that was helping her make this just disappeared with all the footage and then the documentary was about her kind of like talking about the whole process and then going to try to find the footage and stuff like that. Mm. And then that whole process. And it was a pretty good documentary. And it, stylistically, it was very interesting. Mm. Well, I think we uh, about covered all the short turnaround stuff for now. Y'all got any questions? Reach out to us at Redneck Tech Podcast or Redneck Tech Podcast at gmail.com. Um, you got anything else? Uh, I don't think so. All right. Peace. <laughs>